Good morning to everyone who is joining us online and to those brothers and sisters that are here with me this morning. It's good to gather, albeit uh, virtually, it's still good to be able to preach the Word of God. I know this is a bit out of the ordinary, but we don't live in ordinary times, do we? But the fact that we can still do live streaming and see God's Word preach and go out is an amazing blessing. And for those at home, And those here, if you have your Bible, let's just get right into it. I'm going to read from John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. John is in the New Testament. It's between Luke and Acts. Two quick verses, John 19, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of two quick verses. Now I want to take some time to unpack these nine words, these nine simple yet profound words that I believe are super relevant to us here in March 2020. I want want to talk to you ultimately about a Savior who cares. Because in light of the fact that there's this global pandemic happening outside, I'm convicted now more than ever that the message that Jesus is a Savior who cares is so important. Outside of these four walls, let's just face it, there are people who are panicking. There are people who are full of fear. There's uncertainty. There's confusion. Anxiety is running high. But even more amazing is that there are people who deny the very reality that we live in. And even more amazing is that there are people who are tackling this coronavirus head on. And it it, it doesn't matter where you fall in this spectrum, Jesus is still a savior who cares. We've never never lived in an age with complete societal shutdowns. And as, as crazy as it is for me to say this, we've never encountered a time when people fight over toilet paper. But there it is, when fear and panic sets in, humans will instinctively look to their own interests. But this this begs the question, what does this have to do with the tenderness, with the care, and with the love of Christ? Because for those who think much about nothing, knowing about a savior who loves and cares and provides could mean everything. But first, I wanna read something to you from a book called Last Words by Robert Nash. In this particular chapter, he's really homing in on this conversation that happens between Jesus, his mother, and this disciple for whom he loved. He says, kids should not die in front of their parents, yet on that Good Friday, Jesus' life was ebbing away. As a child, Mary held him. Her hugs and love would be instinctual to a mom. Her baby must have laughed, cried, and chattered. He would learn to crawl, walk, speak, grow, develop as children do. She witnessed it all. Mary would have cared for him and nurtured him until he became a man. And on his first visit to Jerusalem with his mother, a stranger approached and spoke a prophetic word. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. And a sword shall pierce your own soul. But Mary went away, and in time, as Dr. Luke tells us, she pondered these things in her heart. 
I'm sure she remembered and felt the blade as Jesus died, the sharp edge of reality ripping through her soul as the religious authorities and the Roman soldiers murdered her son when he had done nothing wrong. The weeping and tears must have blinded her and run dry in her heartache. Her son did not deserve this. She could only watch and weep and pray. He suffered among criminals. This was not Good Friday for Mary. As time passed, he moved closer and closer to death. His life drained before her eyes, and unbelievably, he prayed to God for forgiveness of his tormentors. And then he promised paradise to a criminal. And now he turns to her and his disciple John, and what did he say? Woman, behold your son. He acknowledges her, and he gives her a gift. He consoled her with words that meant something in a male-dominated society. He knew. He knew what she needed and offered some comfort. John could provide financially and emotionally the support of a son to an aging widow. Jesus couldn't take away the searing pain of having to watch him die. But he could help her as her firstborn son. From the moment that Judas betrayed Jesus until he spoke his final words on the cross, the world for Jesus, his followers, and his friends, and his family was a complete nightmare. Shortly after his arrest in Gethsemane, his disciples fled out of fear. Uncertainty set in. Fear overtook them. They practiced, <laughs> they practiced social distancing, but maybe not how we're doing it today because they did it out of fear for their lives but they ultimately looked after their own interests. But yet, on the cross, when you look to the cross, in complete contrast, Jesus looks after the needs of his mother instead of his own. And I might argue, these nine words, from a relational level, are some of Jesus' most intimate and loving words from the cross. And so today, I'm gonna to call my sermon, Jesus, the Savior who cares, I love how in John 19, verses 26 and 27, we see the loving, the tender heart of a son towards his mother. But there's a lot we can honestly learn from this if we just spend some time unpacking it. This tender-hearted moment is easy to miss. If you just read through it and just don't pay attention to it and unpack it, it's very easy to miss the, the loving, tender moment that we see happening here. But let's consider something for a moment, okay? Mary... Jesus' mother is a widow. Joseph's legal father is nowhere to be found. In fact, the last time we have record of him in the New Testament is with Jesus' dedication at the temple when he was 12 years old. And so technically, Mary could have been a widow for 20 years, or she could have been a widow for a week or a day. But the fact of the matter is that she is there alone without her husband as Jesus was dying. And being a widow in ancient Israel... Um, it was a problem, okay? So let me try to paint a, just a really quick picture for you. This is what one commentator says about the life of a widow in ancient Israel. Poverty and indebtedness were all too often descriptive of her financial situation when the main source of her economic support, that is her husband, had died. With minimal, if any, inheritance rights, she was often in no man's land. She had left her family, and with the death of her husband, the bond between her and his family was now tenuous. In other words, 
because of the way that society was structured in ancient Israel, being a widow meant you were in a precarious situation. Naturally, however, with the death of a husband, the responsibility to take care of your, your mother or, or, the, or a widow fell on your firstborn son, the eldest son, to protect and to provide. And so with the presumed death of Joseph, it was Jesus who took up this mantle and cared for his mother. He was the oldest son. And here's the amazing thing. Not only is Jesus the firstborn son, but he's the son of God. Not only is he fulfilling his duty as a son, but, but because he's the son of God, he's demonstrating the importance from God's perspective of what it means to take care of family. Jesus, all right, listen, Jesus is setting the standard by which we should follow. In these nine words, he's not only demonstrating the tenderness of God, but he also perfectly obeys the law that governs him and his duty as Mary's firstborn son. Honor your mother and your father. Even in his death, Christ still fulfills this law. Remember, in Jesus' ministry, he, he, he was questioned about the law and upholding it, and he says, I have not come to abolish the law, in fact, I have come to accomplish its purpose. Not only does Jesus glorify God by upholding the law, but he honors his earthly parents by taking care of his earthly mother. Not even in his impending death does Jesus put his own needs before the needs of his mother. He puts her needs first. We see the plight of a widow, and even as he struggles his last breaths, he still puts his mother first. And here's where I want to make my first point. At the cross, we see the necessity of caring for our parents. Here we see the perfect man, Jesus, demonstrating what it means to honor our parents. And if we are to take the Bible seriously, which we should be, then we must take the heart what it says about caring for parents and for family. Now, I, at first, I, I think... I think we'd all agree that Christ is, is our model for, by which we live, by which we forgive others, by which we love, and by which we do life. And if, if this is true, if this is true for you, then as A.W. Pink reminds us, on the cross we see the tender care and solicitude that Jesus had for his mother. And in this we have the pattern presented to all children for their imitation, teaching them, now listen, how to free themselves toward their parents according to the lateral laws, not lateral, <laughs> laws of nature and grace. In other words, to sum that up, honor your father and your mother. But it's, it's so much more than just giving your parents lip service. It's so much more than that. It's more than just simply showing obedience to your parents. Now, don't get me wrong, honoring your parents also includes being obedient to them. But honoring your parents also includes showing them affection, grace, forgiveness mercy, compassion, and gratitude. And I get it, okay? Sometimes that's hard to do. Because, let's face it, we all struggle with sin. We are all affected by sin. We all have different family situations, but if Christ is our role model, we not only have to show honor to our parents in the practical, but the spiritual for example, and here's just two quick examples. Pray for your parents. Pray for them. And then secondly, speak the truth over them. 
I'm not talking about the sun is hot kind of truth, but I'm talking about gospel truth, speaking scripture over them, coming alongside them, building them up and their identity in Christ. All of these things bring honor to your mother and your father. And it doesn't matter if you live in a traditional family or a single parent or you're in a step family or you have a Jerry Springer family, you're still called to honor your father and your mother. In fact, look what Ephesians 6 says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. But notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say children until you're 16. It doesn't say children until you're married. It doesn't say children until you move out or children until you get a job or graduate high school or start college or university or move halfway across the world. No, it simply says children. And I think based on that, we all fit into that category. And we're, listen now, we are sadly mistaken if we believe that this commandment stops at some sort of predetermined time in our lives. Yes, you may move out from under the shadow of your parents. Yes, you may be a parent yourself, but you are still children. And you are obligated to honor your father and your mother until the end. And if Christ is our model, I'm gonna come back to that a couple times. If Christ is our model, then let us model our lives after Christ. Was Jesus not a child at one point? Was he still not Mary's son as he hung on the cross? And yet he still honors her in his death. Again, as one commentator reminds us, as it is with us, so it was with Christ. The years of obedience to Mary and Joseph ended, but not so the years of honor. In the last and awful hours of his human life, amid the infinite sufferings of the cross, the Lord Jesus thought of her who loved him, and whom he loved. He thought of her present necessity and provided for her future. How? By committing her to the care of that disciple who most deeply understood his love. Despite his situation, despite the fact that he was hanging from a cross, despite the fact that people were hurling insults at him, despite the fact that he was slowly dying from asphyxiation, Despite the fact that he was taking upon the sins of the world on his shoulders, despite all of this, Jesus commended the care of his mother to the disciple who most deeply understood his love. And this is where I'm going to make my second point. At the cross, we are reminded that our circumstances don't override our responsibilities. Yes, it might be very well hard to honor your parents, but I would remind you that we are all, including our parents, tainted by the stain of sin. And this is not me making excuses for difficult situations. Again, as one commentator reminds us, no duty, no work, however important it may be, can excuse us from fulfilling the obligations of nature, from caring for those who have a fleshly claim upon us. We all have difficult family situations. We all have difficult lives in general. I don't think there's anyone that I, that I know or that you know that, lives, that, that has lived the perfect life. 
who's lived a life full of or free from conflict or anything like that. But for all the family can throw at us, for the backstabbing, for the bitterness, for the lies, for the abuse, for the self-righteous behavior, for the hypocrisy, for the broken promises, for the disappointment and the unmet expectations, we still look and gaze upon Christ as our role model. And here's the beauty of, it all, beauty of it all. In as much as we think we've had a difficult life and difficult relationships and difficult family situations, so did Jesus. Consider for a moment, okay? Just consider for a moment what I'm about to say and dwell upon it. Consider what Jesus endured as, a, as he grew into a man. Imagine as a young child, hearing whispers that you're the illegitimate son Remember, Jesus wasn't conceived by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. Now imagine as you grow, having your own flesh and blood, your brothers, your stepbrothers, looking down upon you, making fun of you, and doubting who you are. Imagine eating a final supper with 12 of your closest friends, and one of them betrays you to the authorities. Imagine on the night of your arrest, your remaining 11 friends abandon you. Imagine as you're on trial for your life, your friend in another room blatantly denies knowing you, not once, but three times. Imagine after being stripped naked and nailed to a cross, as the open wounds scrape along your back and splintered wood pierces your flesh, you are being mocked and insulted. To the person on your right, you're being blasphemed. To the people in front of you, they're saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then you look down and you see five familiar faces. Of the five, one is your mother and another is the disciple whom you most love. And none of them are your 11 remaining friends. And yet despite his life, Despite all of this, Jesus, his circumstances don't override his responsibility towards his family. In fact, he goes completely in the opposite direction. He, he still puts the need of his mother ahead of his own. And if we seriously sit down and contemplate the cross, it should stop us dead in our tracks. When Christ speaks, it's profound and, and honestly no less so as he's hanging, dying for the sins of the world. 2 Timothy teaches us something, something very important that I think we should all take to heart daily. It goes like this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And if scripture truly reveals to us the heart and the will of God, then these, <laughs> these nine words should be so important to us. Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. They're there to instruct us, to correct us, and to guide us. And remember, Jesus' circumstances don't override his responsibility to his mother. And if this is the case, if this is the case, your job doesn't override your responsibility, your social life doesn't override your responsibility, the fact that you're not on speaking terms with your parents or even just your mother or your father, that doesn't override your responsibility. 
that we are under government-imposed travel restrictions doesn't override your responsibility, that your child is home for an indefinite period from school doesn't override your responsibility, and social distancing doesn't override your responsibility. Why? Why not? Because as he was being executed, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he put aside his own needs and looked to the needs of his mother. And if that's not convincing enough, all right, if that's not convicting enough, listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy this time. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And yet here, at the end of his earthly life, Jesus demonstrates that his circumstances don't override his responsibility. And as he dies and breathes his last, we see him commending the care of his mother into the hands of his most beloved disciple. Dear woman, here is your son. And this is my third point. At the cross, we see the perfect discernment of Christ. Here we see his mother, the woman who would embrace him as he grew as a child, who would comfort him through all the cuts and bruises, tears and taunts. Here is the mother who would shadow him with her protective, mother-like, comforting love. And now, here is Jesus, her son, dying a criminal's death, looking upon his own mother as she weeps, as she's heartbroken, and as she is naturally distraught watching the beaten, bloody, crucified body of her firstborn child. When Jesus said to John, here is your mother, it was, as, it was as if he was saying to John, here John, take her as your own. As I have cared for her and provided for her, I want you to protect her. I want you to provide for her. I want you to do this now in my place, physically and spiritually. The closest comparison I can give you to what that would be like today is, is as, as a father walks his daughter down the aisle to hand her over to her future husband, he's locked arm in arm, and, and he's conveying to the world by being locked arm in arm that I, I am the protector of her. I provide for her. My wings of protection come over her. And as he hands her over to her future husband, he's symbolically and quite literally saying, now it's your responsibility. It's your turn. I'm, I'm still her father and I, I will find you, lest anything happen to her, but it is now your responsibility. Same thing here. Jesus is quite literally transferring that responsibility onto his best friend. Even in death, even in his impending death, we see Christ's perfect judgment for those who are, in other words, in troubling circumstances. But what's, what's more, okay? Imagine if we, if we look to Christ and we model him in our daily lives, what this would look like inside the church. Imagine if we cared for each other with the same discernment, tenderness, and care that Jesus showed for his mother. Imagine instead of saying, I will pray for you, you actually stop and pray for someone. Imagine if we comforted someone knowing that they are sick. I mean, I'm not saying we don't do this now, but imagine if we did this, if we really came together, like truly, really came together 
and modeled the same judgment and discernment that Christ had on the cross for his mother to each other inside the church. What if we actually lived out Matthew 5? Jesus says in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now this, this of course, is, is a response to the gospel. We don't do good deeds. We don't come alongside people. We don't do acts of kindness to show God that we're worthy because we're not. We do it because he's worthy. And we do this, as Matthew 5 reminds us, to glorify our Father in heaven. In a world where people often have the mindset to take care of number one, taking care of everyone first goes against the grain, does it not? Imagine what that would look like if we put everyone else first before ourselves. And so I want to challenge you, for those who are joining us and for those in the room, is there someone today that you can reach out to? Is there someone today that you can comfort, that you can walk alongside, that you could talk to? Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your neighbor. Because we live, we live in a different world than we did last week. It's, it, it's, it's amazing how quickly things have changed even in seven days. One of the bigger concerns amongst health professionals is this, because of the societal distancing and the government travel restrictions, there's gonna be an increase of mental health issues. As Newfoundlanders, we faced this in January for even a week when snowmageddon descended upon us. We've tasted what it's like to be locked in our houses, to be shoveling for days on end, to feel like there's no hope to get out of it. And I can tell you people were on edge then. How much more so if we are confined to our homes for three and four, five, six months at a time. Just try and comprehend what that might do to people. And so how do we, how do, let's ask the question, how do we show the world the tenderness and care of Christ at a time such as this? How do we let our light shine before others? If we follow Jesus' example, he was being really practical with his mom. So let's get practical with the world. Do you have an elderly neighbor who can't leave the house but needs groceries? Offer to do their shopping online for them. Stay in contact with family and friends over FaceTime or Skype or whatever video uh, channel you use. Pray with people. And I, I, I saw this, I read this, this news article, I don't know where it was from, but there was a family, uh, their two kids, they were eight and nine, they, they were gonna play the violin and they simply went out to the edge of their driveway and they played violin for their neighbors, right? So, so just real practical stuff. Now imagine, like, I'm not asking us to, to live in this legalistic manner, but as a community of believers, let's show the world what it means to model Christ. And not just the world, but with our own spiritual family as well. Imagine what people would think if we, if we modeled the same perfect discernment, uh, if we modeled uh, the same qualities that Christ modeled to his mother and his 
closest disciple on the cross, the world would think we were absolutely crazy. And as important as, as all of this is, that we learn the value of taking care of each other physically and, and practically and, and spiritually, the greater application is yet to come. And here's where I want to make my fourth point. At the cross, we see the importance of our spiritual family. The author of the Gospel of John, which I read earlier, is none, none other than the Apostle John himself. The same John who reclined with Jesus during the Last Supper. The same John who would stand before Christ during his crucifixion. And even though all 11 of Jesus' disciples abandoned him, it was only John that's recorded in Scripture as coming back to Christ at his execution. It was only John that we read of returning to his cousin's side. It was John who returned to the cross. It was John who was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it was John whom Jesus entrusted to his mother after his death. John shouldn't have been the first person that Jesus handed his mother over to, but he did. Have you ever considered that, that it was John? In the natural order of things, Jesus should have handed or gave the care of his mother to, his, to the next eldest son, but he didn't. John wasn't part of Jesus' immediate family. He wasn't Mary's son. In fact, as I mentioned, it was more likely that he was his cousin. You don't, you don't just bypass your brothers and hand over the care of your mother to your cousin. That's not how things happened in ancient Israel. And so all of this is to lead up to the question, why? Why would Jesus choose John over his own family? Simply put, they just, they weren't spiritually ready. Tim Challies, author and blogger, he suggests that at the time that Jesus hung on the cross, his siblings simply did not believe in him. It stands to reason then that he would ask one of his closest followers to take care of his mother. But I believe Jesus is doing something far greater here than simply choosing his first cousin over his brothers to care for his mom. I believe what Jesus is doing is flipping our understanding of family on its head. It is now, here at the cross, that having a spiritual family becomes possible through Christ. It is through the cross that we can be adopted as sons and daughters. And so it is through the cross that we can become brothers and sisters. If you remember back uh, in Matthew 12, verses 46 and 50, we see this, uh, this scenario unfolding, and we learn how Jesus' mothers and brothers were standing outside of this house wanting to speak with him. In verse 48, Jesus replies to the crowd who's, who's telling him this. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever do, does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Look what he says. The one who does the will of the father are his brothers and sisters and mother. He was teaching, as Robert Nash highlights, that the spiritual family is more important, even more so than 
our earthly family, and, and that might be a, a hard pill to swallow for some. He continues, John was part of that spiritual family, and so was Mary. They were followers of Jesus. Jesus seemed to be saying that belonging to the family of God is more precious and important than even ties to our earthly families. And John Piper takes us one step further. When Jesus says to Mary, look on John as your son, and John, look on Mary as your mother, he's showing us how our needs are to be met when we have left everything to follow him. Paul said in Acts 20, that Christ purchased the church of God with his own blood. Therefore, one of the gifts Jesus gave to us from the cross was the church. A loving, caring, sustaining, encouraging family beyond family. And it is a great encouragement to our faith that he illustrates the meaning of the church the way he did in the relationship between John and Mary. You see, Jesus put a great honor upon John to take care of his mother. Mary's spiritual health was more important than her physical needs because like us, Mary needed a savior. Because like us, Mary needed to be reminded not of Jesus, her son, but of Jesus, the son of God. Don't forget, Mary's soul was being crushed. And no doubt she would need to be reminded that this wasn't simply her son dying before her. It was, but it was the Son of God taking upon himself the sins of the world. The Son of God who would destroy death, who would rise victorious, who would take his seat at the right hand of God. This was, as Simeon prophesied 20 years earlier, the salvation of God being displayed for all those who call upon his name. So what do we do with this? I just spent the last 35 minutes demonstrating that Jesus is a savior who cares. And when you look outside, it might be very easy to conclude that God doesn't care. In fact, the world is a mess. The coronavirus is is plaguing 159 out of 195 countries. Of those, 300,000 people are infected. And of those, 13,000 are dead. And I'm sorry to be so morbid about this, but this is the reality that we live in, in March 2020. But listen now, the virus, this coronavirus doesn't come as a shock to God. It's not a surprise to him. It's not like, it snuck up behind him and was like, oh, hey, God, here I am. This doesn't surprise him. But to say that we have a God who doesn't care would be, blatantly put, irresponsible. Because when I look to the cross, I absolutely see a God who cares. I see a God who endured much for the sake of others. I see a God who, as a man, put the needs of others before his own. I see a God who, as he breathed his last human breath, continued to serve instead of being served. And I see a God who, despite the circumstances, still moved to take care of his family. I see a God who got involved in the messiness of life. And I don't believe for a second that Jesus is a savior and a God who doesn't care. Even outside of all that, when we look to the cross, 
I, I believe we were reminded in this conversation of four things. We see a Savior, like I said, who cares for a family. We see a Savior who didn't allow his circumstances to override his responsibilities. We see a God who's perfect in judgment and discernment. And lastly, we see a God who not only puts emphasis on the need to support family, but we see a God who cares deeply about his family, the church. We have a Savior who absolutely cares. So don't allow social distancing to be a crutch or an excuse for not letting your light shine before others as we read in Matthew 5. This is a fantastic opportunity to demonstrate to the world the love, the tenderness, the care, and the provision of a Savior who cares. But don't go put yourself in harm's way. As Christians and indeed Canadians, we need to submit to our authorities and to the government. But just because we live in an age of social distancing, just remember this, viruses can't jump over the phone. So pick up the phone and just call someone. Get real practical. A phone call can do better than you know. So I leave you with this. Who among you is in need? Is someone sick? Does someone need prayer? Because if you look outside, there's a lot of people. There's a whole world that could benefit knowing that we have a Savior who cares. And if Christ is our model, then let us model Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can use technology to preach your word. I thank you, Lord, that at the cross you demonstrated what it meant for you as a man and as a God to care for family. Lord, as we go about our days and weeks and months in light of this coronavirus, let us be a family. Let us be a church convicted of the need to care for others and to care for ourselves. Because God, you are a God who cares. Amen.